This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237. Or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. Hello there, and you're very welcome along once again to Late Lunch. It's Monday, um, and this is Barbara Scully in with you again this week for Jerry Kelly. So a new week, and um, I actually think the weather has started to definitely turn autumnal, getting a tad chilly now in the evenings. Last night, we at home finally succumbed and turned on the heating. Have you turned on your heating yet? Um, I'm kind of glad we got to nearly the end of September, but I, ha- I did make one concession, a big concession, is that I've turned down the thermostat. I won't embarrass myself by telling you what our thermostat normally is set at but um, tropical probably would be a fairly good description. Um, so I've issued an edict at home that we are not going to expect to sit around in shirts or in t-shirts uh, indoors this winter. Gansies, we need to all have a gansey on and uh, throws for extra extra warmth if we need them. And last night actually it kind of sounded wintry as well because I was lying in bed and I was listening to the wind howling outside in the rain um, hitting the windows when you know you have that awful sinking feeling when you go oh Jenny I left the washing out in the line. I was very surprised to see that most of it, I think, is still there. It's now drying off again for the second time. Of course, the other thing that happens when the weather starts to go uh, a bit south and it starts to get cool at this time of the year is we are joined indoors by my favourite knot, spiders. And I was lying in bed the other night reading my book when something caught, moved and I caught it out of the corner of my eye and there was a big hairy, one of those big black hairy oaks casually climbing up the side of my bed. Of course, freaked out and, and gave it a, a kind of a, a hit it with me leg and it shot under the bed where I presume it still is, which, you know, if I think about it, will come between me and my night's sleep. Um, anyway, um, what's on your mind today? Tell us uh, tell us all and uh, give us your reaction to any of the stories that we are talking about. You can send us a text or a WhatsApp to 086-1800-658 and we would love to hear from you throughout the show. We've a great show lined up for you to, again 
again, as usual, some really good guests and interesting topics to talk about. And the first one um, concerns poverty. And I know, you know, poverty can affect people's lives in, in many detrimental ways. But one of the things we often don't think about is hygiene poverty um, and how that can have a devastating and kind of like domino effect on people's lives when they cannot afford products that I suppose the rest of us thankfully would take for granted. So to tell me about the Hygiene Bank, I'm joined on the line now by Kira Dalton. Hi Kira, how are you? Hi Barbara, how are you? Thanks so much for having me on. Not at all. Thank you very much for taking the time out. Kira, you're one of the founders of the Hygiene Bank, which works to end hygiene poverty, which is probably a new term that maybe not a lot of people are familiar with. So could you start by just kind of giving us a, an idea of what hygiene poverty actually means? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so it's essentially exactly how you explained there. You know, hygiene poverty, it's the inability to afford many of the everyday essential hygiene items that most of us take for granted. And, you know, what that looks like obviously depends on each household and each individual circumstance. But generally, you know, it's, it's not being able to wash your clothes in uniform as often as is necessary, or it's one family sharing a toothbrush, or it's parents having to reuse dirty nappies. Good Lord. Um, That's kind of shocking, I think, because, again, it's something that most people don't actually think about. When you think about poverty, you think of people not being able to afford to to buy food. But you kind of forget that those kind of really basic things um, become a problem if you can't afford them. So if let's take a couple of examples of how this impacts into people's lives. So, for example, uh, period products. What happens when people can't afford to buy period products? Yeah, so what tends to happen is that, you know, it's particularly prevalent in, you know, young females um, or people who um, get periods, you know, they tend to miss out on school or work because they just can't afford um, whatever period products they're trying to um, they're trying to use. And so it ends up that they, they just miss out on school or like a day's education or a week's education or a week's pay Um kind of depending on their circumstances but yeah like we it's it's not a known issue but um we we actually did some research back in april and it found that 41 percent of the population had either gone without or cut back on hygiene items um so you know it's not a wide known issue but it is one that's affecting you know nearly 50 percent of the population and it is one that we are trying to tackle and of course it's one that's kind of hidden because there's an element of shame about it if you can't afford to buy shower gel if you can't afford to wash your clothes um, there's going to be an issue like number one your self-esteem goes obviously whatever bit you have is, is gone but number two you know there's clearly going to be an issue with perhaps per, what we would call personal hygiene with a smell um, and so people then just stay stay they, they withdraw from society would that be correct would that be too strong? Yeah, no, that's that's totally fair. Um, yeah, it just results of people, you know, they have to essentially draw back into themselves and they just can't participate fully in society. So, yeah, it affects, it affects their, um, their self-esteem and their mental health and well-being. Um, and, you know, yeah, their general health as well. Like, you know, oral hygiene is a huge one. If you can't afford to brush your teeth, we all know it was all drummed into us when we were kids, just how important it is to um, brush your teeth. But if you can't afford toothpaste or a toothbrush, then, you know, it's it's only natural that that's going to happen and you're going to have issues uh, stemming from that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, and, again, and and then there is the issue of being judged, is that, and I mean, I, I when, when I was reading that in the research, I was thinking particularly of children and how hard it is for small children in school. If they're going in and their clothes aren't clean and they're not clean, um, other children won't be long about, you know, kind of calling names and that kind of stuff, which must be really tough on small children. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, probably even harder on the parents knowing that they, they're they having to send their child to school unwashed or unkept. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's a issue affecting, you know, an awful lot of the population um, and one that has far-reaching consequences. Um, yeah. But, yeah, hopefully more people can uh, get involved and support us and then we can all help tackle the issue together. Yeah, so tell me about the Hygiene Bank. I know it started in the UK and was inspired by a film. Can you tell me what, what was in the film and what the film was that ins- that inspired uh, somebody to start up a hygiene bank in the UK initially and when that was? Yeah, um, so yeah, the UK started about four years ago um, and, yeah, it was the founder over there watched um, I, Daniel Blake, it's called, and it's um, in the movie, essentially what happens is someone is arrested for stealing, um, I think it's a toothbrush and a packet of um, period pads. Um, and that just kind of, you know, spurred the idea, well, like, you know, we know food banks exist. Well, of course, people, if people are struggling to afford food, and they're also going to be struggling to afford hygiene items. Um, and, you know, yeah, the, that's exactly what happened here as well. Um the UK were looking for volunteers to get involved. So there was a few of us and it started off in Dublin um, and we essentially just asked a few inner city charities um, if they would benefit from, you know, regular donations of hygiene items and the response was overwhelmingly yes. Um, so that's kind of what started us here. Um, we got it, we started late 2019, um, but kind of really got going at the early 2020 Um and yeah, it started off with, with a handful of us in Dublin and now there's over 80 volunteers across the country and we've donated uh, 32,000 kilos across um, across the country back into local communities. Um, but I suppose how we work generally is that we have projects set up in various locations across the country um, and they're manned by volunteers who then collect and then donate the items to local organisations who are embedded in local communities. Um, so we don't currently have a project in Laos, but we are looking to set one up in the next, say, six months or so. Um, so if there's anyone listening who has, you know, a, a spare couple of hours a month um, or even a couple of hours a week um, and wants to get involved or thinks this might be something that they'd be good at, um, please feel free to re- reach out to us. Um, you can apply to volunteer through our website, which is thehygienebank.ie. OK, and if somebody is interested, perhaps, and has a little bit of time available, what kind of stuff are they going to be doing? Because a lot of people I know are happy to volunteer, but don't like having to ask for stuff for nothing. So where do you get your, do you fundraise and buy the stuff or do you look for supermarkets and, and uh, distributors to pre- uh, provide you with the products that, that are needed? Yeah, so it's a bit of a mix. Um, I suppose our bread and butter is um, we have drop off points. And, you know, they're basically what it says on the tin. We ask local businesses to host a box in their premises somewhere that the general population can then um, drop, item, drop items off into. Um, and so volunteers generally, you know, we each project is made up of like kind of like a committee. Um, so between three and five volunteers who run like the organizational side of things. And then there's um, donation coordinators who are responsible for each drop-off box um, and then there's general volunteers who help with the you know collecting and distributing the um, items to sure. the community partners and the organizations that we work with um, so you know there is um, loads of different ways people can get involved um, you know that kind of varies from an hour a week or you know two hours a month um, kind of depending on their time um, and their availability and stuff like that um, but yeah we also then to fundraise and we have some really good corporate partners and um, we've actually just launched a partnership with Boots um, which is great and should hopefully see the amount of donations that we get in increase. Well um, done. 
Well done. And tell me, is there, I mean, one of the things I suppose that that also people have to get over if they are experiencing uh, hygiene poverty is the embarrassment about asking for uh, very personal items, perhaps, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, what are like our donations? So we work with community partners who are organisations that are already lo- like embedded in local communities and the, the feedback that they give us is that, you know, our donations really allow them to kind of provide wraparound supports. Um, like they might have someone in their local area that they know is struggling a little bit. And by being able to offer them, offer hygiene items to them, yeah. like it's kind of that, it's, it's that initial step in the process um, for them. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's affecting nearly 50, 50% of the population. So like, wow. obviously it's easy for me to say, don't be... Um, embarrassed or worried about it but just know that like you, you, anyone suffering with hygiene poverty at the minute they're really not alone um, it's affecting a huge percentage of the population um, so that's yeah that's yeah. a really good message I know the government also have a pilot scheme to provide free period products to so, scum, bleh, to some schools and colleges so I presume if that if that is a success as a pilot scheme there is a hope that perhaps in the future that certainly for young girls uh, um, that they will get uh, period products uh, for free through their through their schools. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure of the details of that pilot scheme. I think it's been on pause due to the pandemic for quite oh. a while now. Um, but yeah, I know if it is implemented, it will be great. And there is some businesses that already do offer things like that in the bathrooms. Um, but yeah, I know like a really easy way for companies to I suppose, challenge hygiene poverty within their organisation is just yeah simple things like that, like adding deodorant to the bathrooms or period products or whatever the case may be, you know, maybe adding yeah. shower gel to the showers if there is one. Um, just simple things like that so that if, it, if anyone is affected, they can just have access to these products really, really easily and they don't have to go asking or searching for them. Sure. And I know, I think Lidl also provide pre- free um, period products uh, through their app. I think you can kind yeah. of register on their app and you can you can uh, get a voucher that you can use against period products once a month. Is that correct as well? Or do you know about that? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And hygiene poverty, you know, it's, or, sorry, period poverty, it's just an element of hygiene poverty. Um, so anyone experiencing period poverty is probably also experiencing hygiene poverty as yeah. kind of a subset of each other. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, there's loads, loads of supports out there available. Um, I suppose if anyone is struggling with hygiene poverty, they can always reach out to their local family resource centre um, or community development project, you know, whatever, okay. um, whatever they have in their area. Okay, great. So a lot of your work really is about nor- it, not normalising as in accepting it, but making people who are experiencing uh, hygiene poverty um, realise that it is, it's a normal part of poverty. It's not poverty in itself isn't normal, but that they, they don't need to be ashamed or embarrassed about it and that help is available. And uh, can I just say again that uh, Kira is looking for volunteers, uh, rather the Hygiene Bank is looking for uh, volunteers in the Louth area. So if you do have a little bit of time and you would like to help this is a really important project and you can get in touch with Kira through your website isn't that right Kira? thehygienebank.ie yeah and we also we're across social media as well at the hygiene bank i or e there you go you have it Kira. that's very good and uh, again well done on on having the initiative to set this up here in ireland it's it's terrible that it's necessary but it is and it's great the work you're doing so again continued success to you and thank you very much for joining us today thanks barbara have a good day you too Now, my next guest is a young man who has done something quite extraordinary recently, but I'm going to leave it to him to tell us what that is. Rory Houlihan, you're welcome to Late Lunch. 
Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Now, Rory, um, you are 17 years of age. You're from Termenfecken and you're a Leaving Cert student. Where are you at school? I draw at grammar school. Very good. Now, I want you to tell us all. La- was it, I think it was last week you did something quite extraordinary. What did you do? Yes, so last week I was invited by, the, uh, by UNICEF to the United Nations Transforming Education Summit, um, uh, which was the mainline event for the, uh, the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, so you were invited. Did you just go along and sit in the audience? Oh, uh, well, no, I went and I had the chance. I got to meet key decision makers, um, including the Queen of Spain, uh, the Taoiseach, the Deputy Prime Minister of Thailand, and I got to address a speech on mental health. And who did you address the speech to? Those those few people that there that you've just mentioned? Very um, impressive yeah, and all. Excluding uh, the, uh, the Taoiseach, uh, but also key decision makers and partners in UNICEF and partner organisations. And can I, can I ask you a question, as somebody who does a small bit of public speaking, it is quite terrifying. Were you terrified or um, facing into it? How many butterflies did you have in your stomach or were you OK? <laughs> well, I, I, no, I, w- I wouldn't say I was terrified. I was, I suppose, a bit nervous, despite me not wanting to admit it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you were like the proverbial duck, floating along quite, quite calmly on the top and paddling like crazy underneath. Yeah, <laughs> no, I suppose it was that. I, I, I personally would do better in um, just speaking on the spot, because then if I don't, if I'm preparing, well, if, if I have a lot of time to prepare, I tend to overthink. So right. I, uh, yeah, but I, I was fine and I, it was uh, exciting for me. Now, tell us, what were you talking to these esteemed, uh, very important people about? I was talking about the importance of te- properly teaching mental health and transforming the quality education we receive. So I would personally define quality education as an education where people are empowered, where young people are empowered to talk about their mental health and to know, to be fully aware and have a proper understanding of mental health. At the moment, from the ages of about 12 or 13, these ideas, book definitions of mental health are forced onto us. And I personally would be of the belief that we need to be talking about mental health um, and the importance of talking about our emotions from a younger age. And when I say that normally, people might think, why would we be talking about these such big deep issues from the age of four or five. I'm not talking about mentioning big, scary words from that age. I'm talking about actually talking about what it means to be happy, what it means to be sad, the importance to not always be happy and how it is normal to feel sad throughout the day. You know, we shouldn't be feeling happy 24-7. To try and eradicate this um, this concept of toxic positivity in this world. Toxic positivity. That's very interesting. Um and do you think it's a question also of getting the younger children in particular just to check in with themselves and take their kind of emotional temperatures and recognising that that's a healthy thing to do or is it a healthy thing to do? Um, I think just take it as it comes, not to worry too much about your feelings. I think it's to gain more peace from a younger age. And so there's less of a shock when you, I suppose, hit puberty or hit the teenage years because there is that sense of shock. Why am I feeling these feelings? But they're all normal feelings and most likely uh, you've been feeling these feelings your whole life. It's just, it's more enhanced and it's more amplified at that age. So I think to properly talk about that and also to break the stigma of mental health from a younger age, if we're talking about it, and just to have this respect for all, which I really advocate for. 
Right. And what gave you the insight um, in which, the, you know, from which comes this passion for mental health and for, you know, particularly as you, you talked about the way edu- the way we educate our younger people around the issues around ment- mental health? I suppose, um, are you talking about like what, uh, at the event or just in general? No, in general, in your life, what has, what has prompted you to, to explore all of this and to, to come to the kind of um, conclusions that you're uh, articulating here with us today? Well, I am, as a mental health advocate, I'm also a teenager. And as a teenager, whether we like to admit it or not, we all experience uh, different fears and anxieties. And that's something that we just need to talk about. Because, yes, we say we talk about mental health, but we're a very, we have a very long way to go. And I, it's something I'm very passionate about because I, there are certain thoughts, you know, I might have thoughts or fears. And I wonder, do other people have, do other people have that? And... I, I kind of thought, why don't we talk about it? Or why is it still that bit taboo? And then I realised, well, it's because it's not properly taught in the schools. So okay. we need to properly address it. So you think that people of your age are kind of slow to talk about how they're feeling, particularly if they're not feeling good, that they, f- they feel they have to put on a front and, and let on everything is OK? That it's yeah. some kind of failure if they say, I'm not feeling good, I'm unhappy or I'm sad or... Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, no, you have it in one there. If you, There is this kind of general idea that if you are to mention that you're feeling low, there's this fear that people will always perceive you as be feeling low. When nice. that's not the case, people shouldn't, and people don't look at you differently when you say you're feeling sad once. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden this image of a happy person is changed. You're just having a... that you could just be having a bad day or perhaps there's an issue you have to deal with. Yeah. And that's something we need to properly, I suppose... Um, deal with. Yeah. yeah, I'm reminded listening to you, I mean, your point is that feelings can, are transitory. You know, you don't, you, if you're sad, it doesn't mean you're going to be sad forever. Um, and I'm reminded of, I think it was a meme on social media I saw recently, which was talking about how our feelings are expressed, Osgaelge in Irish, where we say the feelings are on you rather than you are. In other words, you don't say, I am sorry, or, you know, you say, or you know, that the, the, the feeling is on you rather than is you yourself. And that's basically what you're trying to say as well isn't it well, that's an amazing way to put it there you go Rory you can have that for nothing I won't even charge you for it uh, because it's not mine I robbed it off somebody else but take that now and run with that Rory do you think that we hear enough of young people's voices in general around issues I think to be honest the government is doing a very good job it must be said on listening to young people's opinions it's, it is very much down to making the young people aware that there are such provisions in place. Like, I started this all through UNICEF um, um, as I won the Taoiseach Takeover competition. You won which, uh, which, which? What did you win? Uh, the Taoiseach Takeover competition where I brought forward an issue and I had the uh, chance, the opportunity to speak to the Taoiseach about a, an issue that um, concerned me. And I spoke about my experiences of homophobia and how I'd like to reform the relationships and sexuality education programme. But I think, to be honest, Going back to what I was saying about the government, we have Corlin and Oak in every county council area, which is the Youth County Council. And we also have the National Council of Ireland. And as well, when I was in New York, I got to meet the UN youth delegates. So we do have great provisions in place. It's all about making sure young people are aware that they are in place and that they're very accessible.
Yeah, because I write, uh, I've just was before the break there giving a plug to my book. And I mean, I'm very focused at the moment on, on ageism and I'm preparing talks going into companies on ageism from my perspective as an owl one, right? Which is, you know, quite different. But ageism also affects people of your age because you're seen to, you know, in general, I think very often in a, in society, although we're kind of youth obsessed, we kind of think that young people don't have the experience so that, you know, what they say is really not that important because they don't have the experience. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, I went on this uh, journey to New York. It was also a personal journey as an advocate because I would be. Able, I used to be of the belief that I would have. It's better to expand and to keep talking as a justification for why I am there, why I'm speaking alongside these adults to show that I am, I can be taken seriously. But I've learned that less is truly more, and it's important to just share. Uh, not to talk about every topic and every argument possible, but to hone in on the most important arguments and to keep it concise, which is a big thing. Very good. God, I know a lot of people who could take that advice about keeping it concise. Um, what's next? What's next, Rory? What's what's next on your... Who next are you going to speak to? Have you an audience with the Pope or anything lined up? Or <laughs> Well, I most certainly... Uh, I know that right now I'm hoping to just knuckle down and uh, get on with my studies as I'm in six years, so I need to... I, I just want to catch up on schoolwork that I missed on uh, because of this. But yeah, that after afterwards when I'm in college, I know that definitely. And once I finish the leaving first, I, I will continue my advocacy. Right, great. Um, have you have you an idea of what you want to do when you leave school? Is well, there a I'd career like, in politics beckoning for you? <laughs> I'd love to study law, and it's just a matter of law and what. Um, I'm thinking perhaps um, either law and business, law and economics, or law and politics. Um, I know that I'd love to be a barrister and become a legal advocate and hopefully one day work alongside my mother. She's a solicitor, so we could perhaps do a case together. Fantastic, fantastic. Rory, you're an absolute, you're a breath of fresh air. You are a very articulate, thoughtful young man. I wish you the best of luck, not only in the Leaving Cert, uh, but also in whatever you choose to do next. And I have no doubt that uh, you will do many uh, interviews on radio in the the not too distant future. So best of luck with everything you're doing. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today on Late Lunch. Thank you very much for having me. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Right. Some of you may have seen, because I think it was covered uh, um, on some media, that there was some vandalism in uh, beautiful Carlingford over the weekend. So joining me now to tell us uh, what happened is Michael Muckin, who's chairperson of the Cooley Peninsula Community Alert and the Marine Litter Group. That's quite a title, Michael. Good afternoon to you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> you have a lot, of, lot of hats there, Michael, wearing them all at the same time. Fair play to you. Tell us a little bit about uh, what happened over the weekend in Carlingford. Unfortunately, on, on late on Saturday night, the 24th, um, a lot of vandalism took place along the wonderful seafront that we have. Um, they ripped two of the bins actually out of the ground. And I'll give you an idea, it took three of us yesterday to lift them from the water. That's the weight of them. Right. Um, they've smashed up the, the one and only bus shelter that we have. And they're incredibly, you know, it's that perspect. It yeah. takes an awful lot of force to, to break it. And the wonderful tidy towns that we have in Carlingford, <clears throat> who've put in picnic benches and everything over the summer, had all of their planters, which are, again, very, very heavy, all overturned and the flowers are all totally ruined. Oh, that's very disheartening, isn't it? And very disappointing. And they're an amazing group. You know, I was we were in the area yesterday, Joanne Redpath that oversees the, the tidy towns and people from Clean Coasts 
the local oyster farm as well. We we all came out yesterday to try and tidy up after it. Um, but they're there every day of the week, cleaning ba- cleaning up around the bins, lifting litter. And for them to all get up yesterday morning and see yeah. hooliganism um, is very, very hard for them. It's very disheartening. And I mean, Carlingford has a reputation, not only just locally, but nationally, as being a very picturesque spot and a spot that many people go to for holidays and weekends and things like that. Has most of the damage been repaired at this stage? I suppose the bus shelter and things like that isn't. Unfortunately, the bus shelter um, will take a bit of time to, to get prepared. But, you know, we have a local councillor who's been great, Anton Waters, and giving us the right contacts to reach out to. And the councillor are aware about the bins and will do their best. Thankfully, they didn't break the new solar-powered one. Right. It's actually right beside the bus shelter. Um, and the flower pots, we've put them back as good as we can. But unfortunately, you know, funding to even get flowers to, to make them look right. Yeah. Will will take some time, but in all fairness, um, the Gardaí have been great and they have some suspects already identified, so that's a a step in the right direction. A step in the right direction, and I presume you're asking if anybody knows anything or if anybody saw anything or if anybody has any CCTV or anything like that to get in touch. Absolutely, if anyone, you know, was driving through the area, you know, maybe about a quarter past 11 Saturday night onwards and seeing anything suspicious or anyone with dash cams, etc., um, they can. You don't even have to go into county for guard station. It can be left into Dundalk, um, and you know it would be great to bring these people to justice to send out a sign that you know Carnifoot is wonderful. Yeah, it's so picturesque. Yesterday it was full of families. Yeah, they were all commenting about what had happened and very supportive yeah. of the work that the community does. So. Let's keep it the way it is. Well, hopefully um, it's hopefully, Michael, that it's just one of these horrible one off never to happen again um, events. And I have no doubt that the great community there in Carlingford will get the place back on its feet again and looking as spectacular as it always does very quickly. So um, well done to everybody there who's come out and tried to undo some of that pointless, stupid uh, kind of vandalism that took place over the weekend. Michael, appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. That was Michael in there from the Cooley Peninsula Community Alert and Marine Litter Group in Carlingford. And that was Belinda Carlisle there. Okay, we are a nation of writers, apparently, and storytellers. Um, But as I know personally, (laughs) I think I've mentioned it already in this show uh, this morning, writing a book, even for a writer, is really hard work. Um, And that's just the writing. After the writing comes the editing and then the whole business of actually getting published and getting your book out into the world and into readers' hands. So I'm really looking forward to talking uh, to my next guest, who is a publishing consultant. Orla Kelly, you're very welcome to Late Lunch. Thank you so much, Louise, for having me. It's Barbara here. Um, Hi, nope, Barbara. I'm sorry, my that's, apologies. That's perfectly all right. Um, tell me, uh, first of all, Orla, what is a publishing consultant? What is it that you do? Oh, my goodness. Do you know, this role has really developed over time. I suppose I started off, um, I, I come from a consultancy background, environmental consultancy, and I dabbled in writing when my kids were small, and then I published my own books. And I learned so much from doing that. And I learned things the hard way as well. <laughs> the and best way. Absolutely, life lessons. And then back in 2014, I got awarded a place on an entrepreneur programme to turn my idea for helping others to publish books into an actual viable business. And really over the years, it has grown since then. So I, I suppose, I yes, I do publish books for people. I still continue to do so. 
Um, I've published about, I'd say, close to 200 books in about 30 different book categories. And really, this has given me so much insight into the publishing world, online publishing, digital publishing, offline publishing, different types of books and strategies that I suppose publishing consultancy is one area now that I have expanded into because I'm able to answer a lot of the questions I found myself helping my clients with. Sure. So do you offer your services just to people who want to go down the self-publishing route or if somebody has a book and they want to get it published in the more traditional way, can you also um, help them as well? I can. I, I, yes, of course, I can I can give them lots of tips tips and insights. But I suppose the traditional publishing route is a little bit different um, in that really, I suppose, whoever decides to publish somebody's book, they generally give them money for their book. And so they're almost given like a retainer and then they hand over the manuscript and the printers and the publishers, editors and cover designers would then work on it. So really you're handing over your manuscript. I suppose what I do is I work very much one-to-one with people. So the, the look, the feel, the layout and the design is very much, you know, in their pockets and what they want. So there's no disconnect there and the book is theirs to do what they want afterwards. That's you know? a, Yeah, that's very interesting because I know um, my book was published by a very small startup publisher in the UK, which meant I had huge input into the design and the cover, um, which is, and again, I only, like you, learned the hard way and learned afterwards from talking to other writers that, as you say, if you're getting published by a mainstream publishing house, you probably don't have that control. How important do you think is the cover of a book? Oh, it is so important. And it's actually one of the slowest things I find because if I'm not, ha- like, we we do judge a book by cover. It's yeah. professional. And, and also, it's very important that your cover isn't misleading. I mean, I've had one person come to me and they found an amazing cover, but it had absolutely nothing to do with the <laughs> content of the book. And that can go against you as well. If you try to be too clever or too quirky, um, to make your book stand out, it can actually backfire. Because if your book doesn't look like it belongs into a particular book category, yeah. that can do more damage for your credibility as well. And that's very important too, isn't it? Knowing where, and again, something I learned the hard way, knowing what category, what section your book is going to fit into. Because otherwise nobody knows really what to do with it. Yeah, it's almost like your book ending up being in the wrong section of a library. And if you're yeah. looking for a particular author, a particular type of book, and it's on the wrong bookshelf, nobody's going to find it unless they find it accidentally. Sure. It's very important that you don't just put it in a general, you know, category in a library. You can imagine as a library, for an example, you want it to be really like, you know, romantic fiction or women's fiction or, you know, psychological thriller. Something that's been more defining. So you say, oh, yeah, psychological thrillers over here. This is where your book belongs. But your book may belong in three or four other categories as well that are equally relevant. Yeah. And... um Orla, do you just deal with non-fiction books or do you deal with novelists as well? Um, well, throughout the years, I was I was working with historical poetry, children's stories, non-fiction, all aspects of non-fiction um, and, and, and fiction. Um, I suppose now, and it's really since COVID, I suppose, hit, and I saw more people working from home and yet struggling to make their businesses stand out and make them stand apart from their competitors. I mainly fo- focus on non-fiction business book publishing but I do discretionally take on others I only take on what I feel I can best 
help somebody with. Sure. And, and by business books, it can be a bit confusing. Really, what I mean by business books are anybody who can see the value in having their own book published to grow their business. Nutritionists, oh. therapists, consultants. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting because, um, (laughs) again, as anybody who knows who's written a book in Ireland, there's not really a whole lot of money in books in Ireland because the audiences here are just so small. So you don't write a book to get rich. But what you do write a book for is as a platform or as a way of establishing yourself in a particular industry. Would that be right? Absolutely. And I had one of my past clients contact me recently she was posting, um, she's, a, par- she's um, a wellness consultant, and she was posting about how, how she was writing her book, her book Journey on LinkedIn, which is, you know, because she's a business professional. And she, she, was, she was getting just general comments, likes, but it's only when she became published and showed her book that she started to get work from. People were contacting her saying, actually, do you know, I'm interested in your book. Would you like to come as a keynote speaker at our event? And she was getting a lot more work because they were taking her a lot more seriously now that she was a published author. Yeah, yeah, that's very important. And it's something that not a lot of people would think about. But it is it's a hard way to get yourself noticed because there's an awful lot of work that goes into the writing. I mean, again, I made the classic mistake when I had written my whatever target, 75,000 words, I thought, and I'd done a bit of editing as I went along and I thought, there you go now, I've written a book. And it took me quite a while to realise what I'd written was a first draft, which is like producing the stone out of which your book has to be chiselled. Do people get a surprise when they present you with their 75,000 words and you go, okay, now we've got to do some serious editing? I do, because I suppose by the time people hand the book over, they're absolutely sick of yeah. it. <laughs> they can't see anything that needs to be fixed. And I suppose a fresh pair of eyes, absolutely. And I'm coming at a book from a different angle because it's not just my professional reputation, but it's also the person who's trusting me with their work to get it published, that I'm honest and transparent and, you know, points these things out to them because they'll thank me later. And, you know, and it's amazing. It's only then when they think, well, I don't know, does it need an edit? Maybe have a look. And then maybe if I might send it for a sample edit and then they're coming back seeing all these things that they were oblivious to, it can be, you know, quite a, you know, levelling. Then think, oh, maybe I do need to get a look for it because it's almost like if you're applying for a job or sending out a CD, you wouldn't send it out with mistakes on it. You put your best you know, foot forward and present yourself as best as you can. It's like running about three marathons back to back, though, you know what I mean? Because of the size of the work, you know, the size of the manuscript, it's quite daunting. Do you, um, Orla, also help then if there is somebody with an expertise, but who doesn't want to write or isn't comfortable with actually writing themselves? Do you pair them up with a ghostwriter in order to produce a book? Yeah, and actually, I, I'm actually um, offering ghostwriting services myself. And would you believe it, Barbara, a lot of the books now are actually getting shorter books because people want to consume information fast, particularly non-fiction if it's for people who want to grow their business, whether they're an accountancy firm, a legal firm, some, offering some sort of service, and they want to show their expertise. They're going for the shorter books, and I mean by shorter books, even something around 20 or 30, 35,000 words. Oh, okay. Which isn't very long. So even books, maybe 100, 120 pages now um, are really coming to light. And, and they don't take as long. But yes, I do help people, you know, make sure that they write and publish the best book. Like that they can. That's brilliant. Or if people want to get in touch with you, if there's somebody out there listening to us who thinks, yeah, a book would be a great way of, of, uh, you know, taking my business up to the next level. How can they get in contact with you? 
Um, they can get in contact with me by either email or through my website. Uh, my website is my name. It's orlakellypublishing.com. And that's O-R-L-A, Orla Kelly Publishing.com. And I think you're also on social media as well, so they can probably find you on Twitter and Instagram. I, 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 I am, and LinkedIn, I, I suppose, as well, a little bit on Facebook. But, um, yeah, absolutely, and I will get back to anybody, even if people want to have an informal chat, I would be very happy you know, to answer any questions I can for anybody. Well, that's very fair. Very fair. Listen, I really enjoyed talking to you, Orla. That was very interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Cheerio. Have a good day. Bye-bye. And you're very welcome back. Uh, This is your late lunch on Monday and this is Barbara Scully. Now it is time for this. The Late Lunch Artist Artist of the Week. Artist of the Week. Now, our Artist of the Week this week are an English New Age band formed in Birmingham in 1978 by keyboardist Nick Rhodes, bassist John Taylor and drummer Roger Taylor, no relation to John Taylor. They went through a couple of uh, personnel changes in the lineup before settling in May 1980 to their most famous li- lineup, which included Andy Taylor, no relation to the other two Taylors and lead singer Simon Le Bon. The, first, uh, the band's first album was called Duran Duran after themselves and it was released by EMI on 1981. The first single Planet Earth did make the UK's top 20 at number 12 but a follow-up single Careless Memories stalled at number 37. But it was their third single Girls on Film that attracted the most attention. Now brace yourselves for what I'm going to tell you. The video featured topless women, mud wrestling, pillow fighting and stylized depictions of other sexual fetishes. It was made with the directing duo Godly and Cream, them of 10cc, who were told apparently very clearly by the Duran Duran management to make a sensational and erotic video which would be would get people talking and taking notice of the band and it worked. The song went in to number five in the UK and launched the band onto the world stage. Although the video was actually banned by the BBC and the version that eventually aired on MTV which had only just begun a couple of months I think before the video was made um, the version that they aired was quite heavily edited and I think it's uh, suffice to say that it's not a video that would be made today thank God but anyway leaving the video aside it's a great song this is Girls on Film Welcome back um, I think I may have mentioned before that in a previous life I worked for the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland and one of the issues that I was involved in highlighting 26 years ago was the need for all of us particularly as we get older to consider granting an enduring power of attorney It's something that may be as important as making your will. So what is an enduring power of attorney and why is it important? To answer these questions, I am joined now by Shona Madden from Madden Law in Drogheda. Hi, Shona. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. No problem at all. Um, Shona, can you start by telling us what is an enduring power of attorney and how is it different from the ordinary or regular power of attorney? Well, an ordinary power of attorney, the people can decide the terms of that themselves. So they can decide what it's going to include and when it's going to take effect. The key difference with an enduring power of attorney is the law sets out that it's only effective when the person who grants it is incapable of managing their own affairs or loses capacity. So in the case of you reference, if a person developed Alzheimer's, only then would the enduring power of attorney become effective and not beforehand. Yeah, so so it's, it's only in cases of, and it would really only be dementia, wouldn't it? Or anything that, 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 that affects your capacity to make decisions for yourself. Correct. Now, it could be something just more physical. Mm. Um, brain injury. 
Exactly. Like the legislation, the, the, the words are at the moment, if a person is not capable of managing their own affairs, the enduring power of attorney then becomes effective. Right. Okay. Now, making it's quite a responsibility to give to somebody. It's a real position of trust if you, you know, because this is something you as a person decide to do when you're compass mentis and you're, you're, you're well um, and you're giving this power over your financial affairs to somebody else. So are there any protections built in to protect the person? Yes, and I always say the key is to appoint people that are very trustworthy because in addition to giving power over uh, money, it can be power over all of your decisions in circumstances where you're not able to make them on your behalf. So the law currently as it stands does build in a number of protections really from the point of view of how the um, documentation is put into place. So when it's when the person goes to creation during power of attorney, part of the process involves um, notifying two are called notice parties that you have created this document. That would be a key difference in the will. You don't have to inform or notify anybody. And one of those notice parties must be a close blood relative. So two people are informed, um, not of the details of it, but the fact that you have made an enduring power of attorney gets notified to two people. And then if that enduring power of attorney needs to be registered in due course, those notice parties are again notified of the intention of the attorney to register that enduring power of attorney and they have the right to object. There are a number of grounds set out upon which a notice party could object. So if they feel the um, attorney is not a suitable person or if the person at the time they were making it was forced to do so. So there, those are those protections that are built in uh, to protect what would be a very vulnerable person. So those two notice parties that you mentioned, one you said should be is more is usually a close blood relative. Um, and who is normally the other one then? Is it is it a professional of some description that you need involved? Well, the law doesn't currently set out um, any requirements for that second notice party. Um, I would always advise that somebody who would know you very well, so not really a professional person, somebody who could make, who would um, know what you wanted, would know if there was something wrong and would act accordingly. You want that person to um, object if there are valid grounds to do so and not just stand by and let the process take course. And is there some kind of um, way in which people have to prove that they are mentally competent to to make the enduring power of attorney in the first instance. Do you know what I mean? Because somebody yeah. could be coerced perhaps um, to make an enduring power of attorney, um, you know, for various different reasons. Absolutely. And like the, the service of the notice party is only one part of a series of elements in the enduring power of attorney. So the, list, the solicitor itself has to sign off that the person has capacity. The person has to attend a doctor and the doctor has to certify the person has capacity. All of the attorneys must be present um, when it is being signed and have to sign to accept that they have been advised of their duties and obligations. So it's that together with the service of the notice parties that creates the whole kind of procedure of validly putting in place this enduring power of attorney. Okay. And then explain what happens if then, for example, if I have made an enduring power of attorney to whoever, um, if then I have been diagnosed with something that is going to affect my capacity to make decisions for myself, how does the enduring power of attorney kick in? I presume there's another process by which I, it has to be proven that I am no longer mentally capable of, of doing whatever I need to do. 
Yes, there is a very thorough procedure for which is an application currently through the wards of court um, department um, of the High Court. An application is made to register that enduring power of attorney and only um, on foot of that complete procedure um, does the attorney have any power. So that starts off with an affidavit from a medical practitioner confirming the key um, information which has, the person has now lost capacity. Mm. Um, and then the, there's a series of paperwork that will be served on various parties, like I mentioned earlier, the notice parties. Um, and that is all lodged in currently the wards of court office and a judge reviews the application procedure and also all of the documentation that was produced when it was created, again, to ensure that it was validly created. And then the um, the court will issue a certificate, and it's that certificate that attorneys will need to produce to a financial institution or a, a hospital to make decisions on behalf of the person. Okay, and what happens if you don't or you haven't made an enduring power of attorney and you develop dementia, for example? And so therefore, you know, I mean, again, from my previous life, um, I know one of the issues that a lot of carers had to deal with was perhaps a partner, you know, going to the bank, taking out money, distributing it to all and sundry on the way home. You know, they, they you know, various problems that can arise. So why should people make an enduring power of attorney? Well, things have tightened up substantially, particularly in the banking mm. sector. Like, There's no bank now that's going to release money to a person who's not named on an account without something like, without an enduring power of attorney being, pre- being presented to them. So it's going to give a lot of options to the family members who usually do come at it from a very caring point of view. They want to use assets belonging to a vulnerable person to provide for their care and often they will need access to um, a bank account to do so like really the only alternative is awards of court if there isn't um, an enduring power of attorney in place like you're saying you're advocating this a very long time and it is good it's really come to light though um, in recent years as more doctors are advocating it because they want to rely on instructions from one person who has legal authority yeah. in circumstances where there could be, let's say, conflicting instructions from various family members. But if an attorney is, is um, appointed, they are the legal representative for the person um, who doesn't have capacity to give those instructions um, to a doctor. And they only, um, the the am I correct in thinking that the power of attorney only relates to monetary matters, to financial matters? It doesn't give you the power or does it, but I don't think it does, give you the power to determine or make decisions in relation to that person's medical care, etc.? An unrestricted um, enduring power of attorney does. It doesn't give an attorney power over end-of-life decisions. Right. Um, now, when a person who's drafting it can put restrictions in place, absolutely. But if they don't, an attorney can do anything that a person themselves could do if they had capacity to do so. Okay, but could they, um, for example, if somebody is then critically ill um, and they're at kind of that point of end of life where the doctor is saying, you know, do you want to be resuscitated or do you want us to do invasive procedures in order to try and prolong the life? Does does the power of attorney give the attorney the right to make those decisions? It doesn't. Currently, the the attorney doesn't have power under existing legislation to make end of life decisions. Right. Only medical decisions about medical procedures, but not for an end of life decision. I understand. The other thing which I think is is, is, uh, something I discovered recently is that the fact that you are the next of kin really means nothing when it comes to any of these kind of things. Sure doesn't. 
correct. Legally, it doesn't. And that's why... Because I think a lot of people, a lot of people think, oh, I'm, I'm their next to kin. So therefore, you know, I'm the one that people will come to. But that actually doesn't hold any water at all. It doesn't. And that's why the kind of medical institutions and professionals are asking people to put them in place because the next of kin people do not have legal authority to give those instructions about medical decisions. And Shona, it's never too early, is it, to make an enduring power of attorney because it doesn't expire. In other words, I could, I'm only 60, I'm only a young one, but if I decide I could make an enduring power of attorney tomorrow, couldn't I? Um, And it doesn't expire at any stage. Correct. Absolutely. And I am seeing people coming in younger and younger. The only piece of advice I would give in that regard is that, do you know where I was talking about your notice parties Mm. that you have to serve a creation? They ideally need to be around if it's ever going to be registered. So you need to kind of future proof it by putting names some very young people. That's all I would say. And also if you're appointing attorney and you're you're a young person, you might appoint a substitute because you have to go through the entire process again to create a new one. You can't amend an existing Oh, one. that's really interesting. I'm thinking of yeah, people whose whose kids emigrate or something like that. You've you've you know, you've made your eldest your attorney and then they emigrate and they're not available and you'd have so yeah, be very careful about thinking down the future who's the likely person to be still around. Correct. And there is scope within the current enduring powers of attorney that you can you can ask your attorney to consider the views and wishes of other people. So yeah. if you do have a sibling abroad, it doesn't mean they can't be part of the conversation. Yes. But you have the attorney has to be with somebody else. Yes, yeah, somebody on a practical level, but the okay. attorney should be somebody who's going to be physically around here. Brilliant. And going to know what to do for you. In that's great. Shona, I'm sorry, we've just run out of time, but that's really interesting. And I, I, I think people have found that very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. And that's our lot today. Um, thank you for joining us. We'll be back here doing it all again tomorrow. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 26040 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 